How young is too young to start learning about consent, and what's the right age to start teaching kids about it? How can I tell the difference between a healthy relationship and a toxic one? How can I tell my partner if they're making me uncomfortable? How can I ask for consent without being corny? Understanding bodily autonomy and consent can be crucial tools for navigating healthy relationships of all kinds, including romantic relationships. But helping young people build a strong sense of self and helping them understand boundaries and autonomy should start when kids are as young as possible, well before romantic relationships are on the horizon. On this Back to Basics episode of the Women's Health Cast, guest experts Dr. Ryan Lewellwitz and Dr. Paula Cody define bodily autonomy, share some low-stakes examples of how young kids can understand and exercise their autonomy, and clear up some common questions about consent. From the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. Welcome back to our Back to Basics series of the Women's Health Cast. I am so happy to be talking again to Dr. Ryan Lewellitz and Dr. Paula Cody. Today, we are going to talk about um, the broader concepts of sex, sexual activity, um, bodily autonomy, and consent, and what all of those things can mean together. Um, thank you both so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk about this today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, appreciate it. For this episode, I want to talk about some concepts that I feel like didn't come up a lot when I was younger, even, and I think are really, really important to like developing a strong sense of self and navigating new relationships and navigating some complex dynamics. So um, those concepts are bodily autonomy and consent. And the conversations that I hear around them today are so, so different from even when I grew up a number of years ago that I won't specify. Um, <laughs> but I kind of want to start with uh, a definition of bodily autonomy. What does that mean? I think the definition of bodily autonomy is the ability for a person to decide what happens to their body. Um, and it doesn't just specifically have to do with you know, sex and intercourse and things like that. But just in general, um, just being able to decide what you choose to, to have done to your body or have someone else do to it. So exactly. Just like Dr. Luellowitz said, um, it's not necessarily sexual. We talk about it in a sexual frame often, but it's even who is allowed to touch my body. Um, something as simple as, you know, when I was younger, they'd be my parents would be like, give your grandma a hug, give, give grandma a kiss. Whether or not you wanted to, you did it. And now, you know, bodily autonomy is like, well, I don't really want to kiss right now. And you see um, some people have different levels of comfort with people touching their bodies, and it depends on the situation. So, again, not just sexual, but it can happen in many different instances. I feel like that's something I see a lot, um, just sort of that sense of boundaries and being able to set a boundary as a even as a little kid with like my little nephew doesn't have to give a high five if he doesn't want to give a high five, you know, it's just sort of this, he's in charge of the experience, even as a real little toddler. And it's um, really cool to see. And so I guess my, my two-year-old nephew knows this lesson already. Um, when is it a good time for uh, children and young people to start learning about bodily autonomy and what that means and, um, and 
I guess, consent and what that means for them and for how they move through the world. Yeah, I think that's something you should start as early as possible. Um, you know, like like you use the example of hugs and, you know, high fives and things like that. Um, it starts, I think it starts there and just giving kids permission to say no or I'm not comfortable with this, um, I think is, is a good way to start. Um, and, and really empowering for the child to know that, okay, like, you know, if I'm not feeling like I can be close to this person or I want to give somebody a hug, then they have that ability to say no. And it's not like a negative thing that they're not feeling comfortable. Um, so I would say just, it should start early. And then as time goes on, it's going to get more, more nuanced into, you know, like certain scenarios and situations, which we'll talk more about today. Um, but yeah, it needs to start early. And then it also, I think, is important to also talk about who should be touching your body. You know, like if you're going to the doctor, you know, like, is it okay for the doctor to, you know, you know, look at, you know, feel your tummy or, you know, look at your, your penis or scrotum or, you know, and, and like, you know, you have to like define like why it's okay for this person to do this, but not others. Right. And as a pediatrician, um, that's a, a spiel I have every time, even though I do specialize in teenagers and young adults, I also do see um, a lot of the premenstrual girls with um, nonspecific vulvovaginitis or basically, you know, irritation down in their vulva. Um, and I have a spiel I say every time I'm going to be doing an exam. Um, I talk with the kid saying, you know, this is, I'm a doctor. I'm going to be looking at this for this reason. Um, and mommy or daddy or whoever your parent, the parent is, who's with them is going to be in the room and, um, and this is, we're doing this for this reason. Now, no one should be able to touch here, um, this wherever I'm going to be examining, unless it's, you know, mommy or daddy or a doctor and, or for a specific reason, like a teacher helping you to go to the bathroom and we go through what's okay, what's not okay. And um, also making sure we say, like, you don't keep secrets from mommy or daddy. If anyone touches here and says, don't, this is our little secret or don't tell mom, don't tell dad, that um, that's that's a red flag there. So again, that's as a doctor, that's a spiel I do every time I'm going to be doing exam of a, a sensitive area. Now, when should these conversations be happening? Because obviously it's not just happening in the doctor's office. The same thing we talked about at one of our previous podcasts about, you know, teaching kids about proper anatomy. And as soon as they know what their vulva is or their penis is, they should also be knowing or be understanding that this is your body and knowing can touch it without your permission. These are the these are the situations where it may be okay, but again, you don't keep any secrets from mommy or daddy. Yeah, and and even actually into adulthood too, I think it's important for um, just people to know that even when you're at a doctor's office and they're going to do an exam, it's important for us to explain to them why we're doing it and what we're doing. Um, and so, you know, it's not just limited to kids. This goes on as an adult, you know, I'll do exams for prolapse, which, you know, are much more of an invasive of a vaginal exam. Um, and I explain it. I tell them exactly what I'm going to do, why I'm doing it. And so that they understand. And then, you know, always empowering patients to know that if this isn't comfortable, please tell me we will stop, you know? And so that's, it's always, they're always in control of the situation. I really appreciate that extra context because I 
feel like there's a difference in power or, um, I mean, I guess just a difference in power for, you know, being in a doctor's office and like you all are the experts and we're the patients. And so it's, it's nice to hear that those rules can kind of still apply and there's still space to have autonomy and, um, have a say over what happens, um, even within that, like kind of unbalanced place. So what can, what can feel like an imbalanced place? Sometimes. Right. And to try to mitigate some of that power differential, um, most times when doing a sensitive exam, we have a chaperone in place and a chaperone is someone who is, um, who is not the mom or the dad and not, it shouldn't be someone that also I have power over per se, um, because that, you know, someone who f- would feel comfortable sp- speaking out if they saw um, the doctor doing something wrong. And uh, many places have been more strict in these rules. And I know UW Health has been, we've been revisiting our chaperone policy for a while because of things like um, Larry Nasser, who um, he was able to do things under the guise of this is, you know, I'm a doctor, I know best. And even sometimes using the parents as the guardi- as the chaperones and the parents wouldn't know that what was going on was, was not acceptable. So that is one way that we do try to mitigate um, the, that power differential. And also, like Dr. Luellowitz says, um, always explaining what we're doing, why we're doing it. And the, the patient can, can say stop at any point or they can actually decline that part of the exam if need be or if they prefer it. Yeah. Yeah, I always, as, uh, you know, as, as a male gynecologist, I, I always have a chaperone in there. And I make sure that it's, as, as Dr. Cody was saying, it's, not like a medical student or a resident that I'm supervising. You know, it's someone separate from that. So So we've talked about, you know, when to start laying the groundwork of autonomy as a a child is growing up and starting the younger, the better, you know, give building that like strong sense of self and boundaries. Um, And that idea also feels really, really important as um, we start to grow up and start to navigate relationships and sexual activity and, you know, sort of romantic or sexual experiences. Um, We'll dive into the concept of consent a little bit next. But um, before we do, I want to see if you guys can help lay a groundwork of what sorts of activities or things can fall under that that broader umbrella of sex because it's a, a small word that means a lot of stuff. It's a small word with a really big definition. When we think about sex um, and we're not talking about, you know, um, assigned genders or, or, or anything like that, we're talking about um, intercourse, basically. And what intercourse is, um, I guess when you think about it from a reproductive stance, it is, um, it's, you know, typically thought of as, you know, the, the male sexual organ introduced into the, um, female sexual organ. And then you, the point is, is to fertilize, you know, an egg or an ovum with semen or sperm. Okay. And in humans, that's the penis. It's, you know, inserted into the vagina uh, the male ejaculates, and then that's how that process happens. Um, but then, as we... Sex can also be something that people do together for pleasure, for fun. Um, 
and, and, and unfortunately can also be used as a form of coercion and power. And, um, but it's a really broad topic. Um, and there's lots of different ways you can kind of define sexual contact. It doesn't just have to be penis and vagina intercourse. Um, it can be, it can be much broader and we can talk a little bit more that Dr. Cody, do you have any I'm, I'm just shaking my head. Yeah. So, so um, like Dr. Luelowitz says, sex can be for reproductive purposes where you do have to have, you know, penis, vagina. Um, actually, we can go into how you can have fertility stuff without a penis or vagina. But um, but for the reproductive sense, that's what sex is. But sex is also very much about pleasure. And sometimes it doesn't even involve another person. Right. We, so we have um, masturbation or use of sex toys. We can have um, many different body parts, um, part, different partners, and basically it's doing something for, so for pleasure. And what feels good to one person may not feel good to another person. And um, things that we tend to think about with sex is, like I said, masturbating. There's the oral, the vaginal, the anal sex, where there's a penis, mouth, penis, anus, penis, vagina, vagina, mouth, a whole lot of different things and everyone is different as what what they find enjoyable and pleasurable but like dr luelowitz says um because one person might find something enjoyable and another person may not it can be used for something that's coercion and not pleasurable as well yeah and and you don't it it doesn't have to be i, I it doesn't necessarily have to be involved genitalia either um you know, if somebody is getting like gratification from the act that's happening, you know, if it involves feet or hands or, you know, someone's mouth, right? Like that is still sexual contact. And, um, and that also falls under the umbrella of, you know, like you have to consent to that. You have to be okay with that happening to you. Um, so, you know, we have, I think we have to be careful just, you know, that, that this doesn't always, this isn't always strictly that, you know, like vaginal penis or, vagina, penile right. or mm -hmm. anything. Yeah, exactly. And even certain things that might not even involve touch, right? There's, um, there is the communication via phone, um, like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the, and then, um, what am I thinking about? Um, phone sex, well, right? Sexting is that? Yeah, phone that sex and then sexting. You know, sending pictures, sending and receiving pictures. Again, that could be a, something that's pleasurable for one and not pleasurable for another, or pleasurable for both. So, um, so sex is a is a really really large term that means something different for every person. Doctor Luelitz, I think you kind of started to brush up against the idea of consent and how for any of these activities, the, the important part and important part is that every party is um, like comfortable, willing, an active and, and unable, able, yeah, participant. Right. Um, and I think what I'm trying to do is, is provide a definition of consent, but I'm hoping that you guys can help fill in some gaps to my little fumble there. Um, what when we're we're talking about it, we've mentioned this word, but what is consent? What do we mean when we say that? So for me, and when I'm describing consent, and um, oftentimes I'm describing consent to fifth graders, and so how I describe it to fifth graders may be a little bit different than how I describe it to high schoolers or college students, but. 
in essence, the same. So consent is a choice. It is um, given without the use of force, control, threats, or manipulation. If it takes convincing, really, it's not consent, right? Um, so consent is a choice. It's a conversation. So um, hopefully it's happening prior to the moment. So conversations with your partner, if we're talking about for sex, for example, um, in advance of what's going to be good or not good, um, what the boundaries are. And it should be enthusiastic, so clear, as Dr. Luella said, not there's, you know, there's certain times when people are unable to give consent. And if you're, if you're not giving clear, enthusiastic consent, that is not really consent as well. Um, they used to say, you know, a lack of a no is consent. And I feel like consent needs to be more affirmative and enthusiastic than she, like, they didn't say no, if that makes sense. Um, and, and specific about things because someone can, they may consent to one part of the sexual act and be able to withdraw their consent to if they don't like it or whatever. So it needs to also be very specific and reversible. So again, that's my big umbrella. It's a choice. It's a conversation. It's enthusiastic and it is, um, specific and reversible. I don't know if I could say it better. (laughs) I'm so glad you mentioned reversible too, right? Like, uh, an enthusiastic yes at the beginning of an encounter doesn't mean it has to carry out throughout. Anyone can, like, throw up a stop sign at any time. Every part of every experience needs to be comfortable and okay. We need to be freely, happily... Enthusiastically. <laughs> enthusiastically <laughs> engaging. Right. Um, and that's so... Whenever we uh, talk about consent with, um, specifically with younger kids, but it works with older kids, there is a video I like to show called Consent Tea. And I know, um, Jacqueline, you said that you would link to this later. But that, again, is a very much um, a more black and white version of consent. What is consent? What is not consent? And using tea as an example. Yes, that video will be linked in the show notes for this episode. I have seen it several times and it's helpful literally every time you see it. So it's a recommended watch. We've talked a little bit about what is consent. What does qualify as like free, enthusiastic consent? What doesn't qualify as consent? I, you know, we, we touched on this a little bit here, but um, anytime there's a maybe or I guess or just not a clear resounding yes those those would be things that where if you can't if you can't specifically you know say that this is the act i want done to me or i'm willing to do then then you know there shouldn't be any there shouldn't be any wiggle room there question it should be very specific and um and direct um other things too that can get in um that could alter someone's ability to consent would be if they're on particular medications, alcohol, um, you know, drugs, um, if they have an injury, um, you know, that, that alters their mental status. Um, somebody who may have a developmental delay, who doesn't maybe understand the scenario that they're in. Um, and, um, all those would be, areas where um, the person can't give that resounding, clear yes. Other t- other instances would be where there's a power differential in the relationship. Now, in Wisconsin law, we don't have specific numbers as to what that number means. So it's usually left up to 
um, the person about like if if it's raising your hackles, if it feels icky, something's there. So, um, for example, an age differential. Um, I think a twelve-year-old and a thirteen-year-old um, doing some experimenting is different than a twelve-year-old and an eighteen-year-old. And so again, the the numbers themselves aren't super specific, but um, anytime there's that power differential, or is it um, an employee and a boss? where there's a power differential there? Is it a student and a teacher is, or a coach? Is it um, a family member or a caregiver? Um, anytime that power differential feels, um, feels off, then that also, that um, the consent cannot be obtained. And um, that is one of the reasons, one of the areas that us, even though we are you know, mandated reporters, there are certain things, you know, sexual activity between two um, consenting minors, we wouldn't necessarily um, report if, without um, other instances like um, alcohol or drugs involved, but we would be very concerned about a, a big power differential. So it's good to talk about these concepts, but um, it might be helpful to also talk about kind of how they actually look in the moment or in execution. So how does how does somebody have this conversation during, you know, during an encounter or spending time with someone, how do you actually approach asking for and then getting consent? How do you ask about it? So some examples of someone, uh, of a partner asking for consent would be, can I, you know, fill in the blank, can I kiss you? Can I touch you here? Or do you want me to, or would you like it if, you know, again, fill in the blank. Um, Also, even during the act, doing some check-ins like, you know, is this still okay? Um, would you like me to stop? Or if you're um, in the moment and noticing that someone maybe isn't responding, even if they said yes, but they're not responding how you would like them to respond, even doing a check-in, being like, you seem unsure, we can stop if you want to. Would you like me to keep going? Would you like me to stop? Again, just because what we discussed that consent is also reversible. It's not a, you said it, you said it five hours ago that you wanted it now you know, now you must continue doing it, that again, having check-ins is really important as well. Yeah. And I think even getting leading up to, you know, a sexual encounter, um, there needs to be consent to even getting to that point, you know, like go into someone's, getting into someone's car or, you know, going into their house, you know, you shouldn't feel like you're getting pushed into a situation where that power differential shifts or you can't leave Um, and so again, you know, all that kind of plays into the point where you get up to that point of the encounter and, um, yeah, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The second, (laughs) the second that it doesn't, that the, it's not free and enthusiastic, it's not consent again. So if we start feeling coerced into something again, that you're not giving consent. And so I think going back to consent being a choice and, if you have, if you're needing convincing, it's not free consent. Yeah. And I really love what you said, Dr. Cody, about checking in. If you're not getting the same response from your partner, I think that's really important for people to have that own self responsibility and, um, I guess integrity, you know, to, to be checking in and making sure that your partner is, um, still willing, still consenting to whatever's happening. I want to circle back on something you mentioned, Dr. Lowlitz. So you, um, you know, 
mentioned like getting in someone's car, going over to someone's house, and that kind of popped this thought into my head of, is there ever a time when, you know, maybe after a date, someone's paid for a date or bought you dinner or something, that someone is owed sex or sexual activity or someone, yeah, like... There's never an any time where anyone is owed or entitled to any sort of sexual contact with another person. Um, it is is not a it, healthy, safe, consenting sexual contact doesn't um, involve entitlement or obligation, okay? Um, again, we talked about that this consent needs to be a clear, resounding yes. And even if somebody bought you, you know, a $10,000 diamond bracelet and, you know, took you on a trip to France or whatever, it doesn't mean that you're entitled to anything. And um, it also doesn't mean that if you're the recipient of those gifts or whatever they are, that you actually have to give anything to anyone else ever ever it has to be you feeling comfortable and the other person feeling comfortable and both wanting to partake in sexual contact of any kind okay and circling back to the top of the episode where you talked about bodily autonomy this is again it's your it's your body and you shouldn't be shamed for However, you choose to pleasure as long as um, if it's with a partner, there's everyone is consenting. What's your advice or your recommendation for someone who maybe finds themselves in a situation where they're they're not comfortable anymore? Um, you know, I think that that boundary can be really hard to draw. It can be a very stressful experience. Um, how do we help people feel more comfortable saying no? when they're when they really want to i think this starts actually way younger than anyone anticipates so when we're teaching kids about anatomy we're we're teaching about what's private what's not we're teaching good touch bad touch we're teaching bodily autonomy that you have a right to say what to do with your body in whatever situation if we when we teach young kids will understand that and they can apply it to situations like giving high fives or um getting exams by doctors but also Later on, when they're um, in a relationship and talking about sex with their partner, again, um, making sure that people feel confident in what in their own body and have learned what is um, what autonomy is and what consent is, I think starting early is the key to that. Yeah, you know, I, I think about, you know, this doesn't relate to sexual contact, but I had an incident when I was a kid where, I had a friend who wanted me to stay the night at their house, you know, and I, something wasn't feeling right to me, you know, and I remember I called my mother to ask, because they're like, hey, call your mom so you can stay over, and I was like, okay, and my mother, she had the, the, the sense to just say, do you think it's a good idea for you to stay the night there, and I remember I, I said, no, maybe not. And so she came and picked me up. And um, I think, you know, teaching our kids how to um, 
like giving them the ability to say no and to to um, have a way to exit, even if they're in like necessarily, let's say it's a bad situation where you wouldn't really, you don't really want them to be there, you know. Well, but like being able to 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 give a non-judgmental, I'm gonna I'm gonna help you get out of this, you know. And then I think as we get into adulthood and maybe we don't have our parents there, you know, I think there's ways where you can have like, hey, let me tell somebody where I'm going, who I'm gonna be with, where I'm expected to be. Checking in with people. Hey, I'm going over to so-and-so's place. Here's the address. Um, I think there's ways that um, we can, um, even as adults, help ourselves have an exit plan, you know? And um, I think I think that also just takes, you know, a little bit of, of, of our own kind of um, initiative to make sure that we're staying in a safe place and where we're really not feeling comfortable, you know, having a way to get out of there. And that's if, you know, even like when we go in to see a patient, you know, and we think there might be a patient who's upset with a situation, you know, we're supposed to be closer to the door so we can, we can exit, you know? And so, so even like in scenarios like that, you know, you can, you can try and have a plan. Okay. If this doesn't go the way I'm hoping it's going to go, how am I going to exit it? And I mean, that does take some forethought and it does take some planning, but I do think it's an important, and as, as our kids start to date, um, I think it's important to even, you know, to emphasize that, that how are, how are you going to leave? How are you going to get home? How are you going to, you know, how are you going to contact me? How are you going to let me know where you are? I think those are all important things that we can teach our kids and even maybe our friends. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And again, just again, starting young with the conversations and letting them practice with, you know, with low stakes things will give them the confidence to be able to have the language around the higher stakes things, but also, you, you know, some, risk reduction, as Dr. Luellowitz was describing, um, and that should happen, that should happen very, as often as we talk about sex and boundaries, um, risk reduction should be part of that conversation as well. So to kind of wrap up, do you have top tips for um, parents and supportive adults to start teaching their kids about autonomy and start teaching their kids about consent to help them navigate all sorts of relationship dynamics throughout the rest of their lives? Teaching proper anatomy, um, empowering a child to have that autonomy over their body. Um, I think starting those things early is going to just serve you well and your children well throughout their lives. I agree. And teach And like I just said before, and like Dr. Luellowitz just said, like having them practice when the stakes are low so that they have the confidence to be able to use the language when the stakes are much higher. And I guess I want to add one other thing, too, is just being, as a parent, being open-minded also goes a long way. And having discussions and being able to be someone that your children can turn to can really be helpful, too. Because then when there are situations that are coming up, you know, when they're getting to that middle school years and things like that, they feel comfortable talking to you. You don't have to like, you're not trying to establish that relationship when your kid's 11. You want to try to establish that relationship when your kid's two and then build on it from there. Um, It's a lot harder for somebody, for a child to start opening up to someone who, you know, they haven't been able to open up with in the past. But I, I would say it's never too late. Never if, too if late. you don't have that relationship, <laughs> start now. Start now. Yeah. It's never too late to open up the lines of communication. But um, it is always 
um, it's ideal to have the conversations well before those conversations are needed because sometimes it's, again, it's, it's never too late, but it can, it might be um, having the knowledge and what might have helped in a situation before. So it, kids are going through things before we ever think about them and they're going to encounter things before we want them to. And so again, opening those lines of communication, having open and honest, non-judgmental conversations will let them know that you are a person that they can go to. And I'd much prefer my kids come to me for information instead of going online or asking their friends as much as possible. So we've reached the end of all of my questions, everything I prepared for this conversation. Um, But once again, we've got some uh, questions that were submitted by uh, Patch Youth Advocates, youth advocates who work with providers and teens communicating for health here in Wisconsin. Um, Let's uh, listen to a few of the questions that they submitted for us. How can I tell the difference between a healthy relationship and a toxic one? Yeah, a toxic relationship. It can mean different things for different people. Um, there's different there's different types of coercion, you know, and abuse that can happen in a relationship. So you know, there can be emotional, financial, um, you know, sexual, that can all be forms of coercion and abuse. And so, um, I think I don't think there's any one good way to know if if your relationship falls into these. I think I think it's something that you probably, a person probably realizes deep down that there's a problem here, you know. Um, I think the, you know, important question is, well, how does one, you know, help themselves or, you know, remove themselves from that situation? And that can be more difficult, especially, you know, when people are financially tied to someone else. Um, So, you know, one thing that you can do is, again, come talk to your provider. Um, We all have training in this, you know, I mean, meeting your physician, we all have training in this. um, And, um, you know, we in our clinic ask about, you know, does a patient feel safe, you know, um, at many of our visits. So, um, so there's, there's, there's definitely resources out there for people if they feel like they're in a relationship and they, they want to leave and they need help. There are resources in each community. Um, a great way to start, again, would be just, you know, trying to, to talk with your provider. Um, and something I want to touch base on is when, when we're talking about healthy relationships, often we're assuming you mean a healthy dating relationship, but other relationships can be toxic as well, right? Even friendships um, or family relationships, right? And so basically broadly, and I think we discussed a little bit in the consent episode about what, you know, what consent looks like, but a healthy relationship um, should come from like mutual trust and honesty, good communication, being understanding and calm during arguments, because regardless of the, of the situation, you may have arguments, but you have to, you, you can't feel unsafe during an argument. Um, and one that, um, seeks and respects consent. And again, dating relationships is what we're, we're usually talking about. And the question probably refers to, but that can be friendships and family relationships as well. So, Anytime you feel unsafe in a, any sort of relationship, it's really important to, you know, a good resource will always be your primary care provider or family practice doc, pediatrician, OBGYN. Any of those doctors should be, or, you know, if you see a therapist or even a teacher or something like that. But if you're, if any sort of relationship, it doesn't have to be dating that you don't feel safe, it's important to talk to someone about that. How can I tell my partner if they're making me uncomfortable? I think that the best 
for any sort of relationship is open, honest communication. And if somebody's making you uncomfortable, it's okay to say that. It's okay to be like, hey, this is un- I'm, I'm uncomfortable, you know, or we need to stop. Or, um, and I think we talked about this in the episode a little bit. You know, having yourself an exit plan, especially in situations that are new or unfamiliar, is always a good way to go about it, you know. And so. hopefully you and your partner has, have established a, a pattern of doing check-ins. Um, and we ta- we definitely talked about the, the the consent. You know, if you consent to one thing, doesn't mean you consent to everything. And so check-ins should be happening throughout the time. And you know, sometimes people ask, "How can I, how can I do check-ins without killing the mood?" And it's you know, things just as simple as is this okay? Um, and or even can even make it sexy. You're talking about dirty talking. These are the things I'd like to do. And if the person says nope, then you you need to respect that. So if that partner is like, hopefully you've established some sort of um, pattern of doing check-ins. And, you know, some people are, if they're, they might even do something to try to, um, like a, a safe word, that if there if something is happening that they have established ahead of time, if I say this, that means you can't do what you're doing and they want to do that without killing the mood, that's a-okay. But again, this this all should happen Bef- you know, like a lot of these conversations should be happening ahead of time. And like Dr. Luella says, if at any point you feel uncomfortable, you just, you, you, you stop and you say, I'm uncomfortable. Thank you both so much. This was a really helpful conversation. I feel like in my mid thirties, I've learned something new. Um, I appreciate you both very much for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I appreciate it. All of the resources mentioned by Dr. Cody and Dr. Lowellitz are linked in today's episode description, or you can find them at womenshealthcast.podbean.com. We are coming up on the end of our Back to Basics series. We hope you will tune in for the next couple episodes, which are going to focus on safe sex, sexually transmitted infections, and birth control. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UWSMPH Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can listen to the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our episode description. Thanks for listening.